you recall, we are uh, beginning our study through Nehemiah. We've titled this series, How to Get Things Done and Get Along. Because we don't want to just get a lot done and then be mad at each other all the time. Because the Bible says in the New Testament that love is the predominant character trait of believers, right? So what good will do to build a big church and to see folks say and act like we're getting a lot done if we're always mad and not exemplifying the, the, the deepest character trait of Christ? For God so loved the world. But we do want to get something done. We don't want to sit around and sing Kumbaya and have warm fuzzies and the world go to hell. Amen? So Nehemiah teaches us how to get things done and get along. Three things enabled the Israelites under Nehemiah's leadership to, to see this happen. First of all, strong leadership. Nehemiah 1 through about chapter 3. This is when God chose people to serve him. Then there was a, a strong and a bold approach to opposition. Things happened that weren't very nice, and they knew how to handle them. And the third thing was a return to scriptural authority. In other words, they got back in the land, they rebuilt the walls, and they said, now what? And Ezra, the, the, the prophet, the scribe, brought out the word of God and said, this is what we've got to live by. And they began to take extreme measures. Uh, Nehemiah would pull hair out. He would strike people. He would tell folks they couldn't do their business here, all because the book said it, and we're going to do it. I take from that three things, that, that for us to see some really great things happen and to get along, we've got to serve, stand, and submit. We're going to take those three things from Nehemiah. We're back now at Nehemiah chapter 1. We said the very first component was a strong leader, a leadership team. People that God can use to, in one sense, take a risk, do something that maybe not just everybody would do. That's the kind of person God uses. And that's the kind of leaders God's looking for. I want us to look at some things about Nehemiah today that will help us understand some aspects about leadership and the kind of person God uses. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Turn there. We'll uh, read verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. That's a good name, isn't it? I mean, Hakaliah. He had a constant cold, I think. Um, now, it happened in the month of Chislev, which Nehemiah 1-1 still, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. Now, just stop right there. We're going to get to verse 2. I want you to listen and, and think about the implications of this verse, because there's much insight here that we can't overlook. Nehemiah was a Jew. We find him in a foreign land under a foreign king with a foreign job. How did Nehemiah end up from, from Abraham's promises? I will give you all this land and your descendants will be blessed beyond the ability to number. And this is what God will do for you, Abraham. And now Nehemiah is just a cupbearer, kind of a, a cabinet member of the king. What's going on here? Some important information you need to know. Back in the golden age of the Israelites, under King David, there was one kingdom. Now, don't lose me here. This is kind of like spiritual broccoli, okay? Put some cheese on it and you'll be Okay. There was one kingdom, but they couldn't get along and they split up. And there was a northern kingdom which had ten tribes. And there was a southern kingdom which had two tribes. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The last half became known as Judah. Okay? There's a joke in there. I won't go there. Okay. Um, so these two 
parts of God's chosen people began to exist, Israel and Judah. But because they were consistently disobedient, they were consistently disobedient, even back to the time of the judges, God would uh, have people capture and overtake the people. He would put them into bondage, and of course, He would allow someone, like a judge or something, to free them when they would repent. Well, the same cycle here. They split up. They're disobeying God. They're worshiping false gods. The kings are just rebellious, wicked leaders. And God sends people to capture them. The northern part of Israel was captured by the Assyrians in about 722. Now, if you look at years before the birth of Christ, we go from high to low. Remember, we count high and we go low. We're working down to zero. And then from zero, we work up. So we're at 2002 right now. If we go back before the birth of Christ at 722... The Babylonians came in and captured, excuse me, the Syrians came in and captured the northern part of Israel, put them into captivity. And in fact, there were so many captive, uh, captures during that time that those ten tribes basically dispersed and just kind of were deported to different kinds of lands. The last two tribes, several, a couple of so hundred years later, in 586, were captured by the Babylonians. And that's where you hear about Daniel. Remember Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar? He was part of that captive group. Belshazzar. And those kings in there, and they were taken captive, and they were brought to the Babylonian province. Well, the Babylonians were overtaken by the um, Persians later. And it was in this time period, the 70 years of captivity of the southern two tribes, known as Judah. It was in this 70-year this period that Nehemiah was probably born. Now, this is very important. You think, man, that's like history 101. How could there be any God-inspired connection there? Just hang with me. All Nehemiah knew, all Nehemiah knew was how his people had blown it. That's all he knew. He was born in a foreign land. I'm sure as he grew up, his dad, Hakaliah, would say, Nehemiah, we really shouldn't be here. But we've had wicked kings, and we've had rebellious leaders, and we've had problems with our... Even back as far back as Gideon and those people like that, they were judges God used to bring our people back. We just always messed up, Gideon. Excuse me, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah grows up in a foreign land and gets a job. And year after year, Nehemiah just exists in what he kind of refers to as, well, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's why verse 2 is so important. Now look with me at verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. See Judah there, the last two tribes? The southern captives, so to speak. They showed up in this Persian empire. It's about November, December. Uh, the king is in his winter palace. That's in, called there. It's called the, the capital of the citadel. It's called Susa. Nehemiah serving there as his cabinet member. What his job was, by the way, was to bring... Uh, any kind of food or drink to make sure it wasn't poison or make sure there was no plots being assigned. It wasn't a, a servant kind of like a waiter thing. It was more like a cabinet member, a secretary of defense almost. His job was to make sure the king was secure. And somewhere in there, some men from Judah came in, and Nehemiah said to them, and I think it's important, he, they didn't tell him, he asked them, where is Nehemiah's heart? Someone tell me. It's back in Jerusalem. He's sitting in this foreign country waiting to hear news about how things are back in Jerusalem with the two tribes that are left. Because this is not the way it's supposed to be, is it? And I asked him in verse 2, I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity. 
And they said to me in verse 3, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity, they are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates were burned with fire. Can you imagine this conversation? For who knows how many years, probably 20 or more years, Nehemiah lives with the constant thought of, you know, our people, we just fail. We get right with God and we blow it again. We get right with God and we blow it again. We just can't seem to do anything right over the long haul. So some friends come back, hey, how are things back home? We know that some people left. And the guys say, you know what? It's no different than The walls are broken down. The city's burned. The gates are burned. We're not worshiping in the temple. Nothing's going right. It's like it's always been, Nehemiah, where history. You see, the Jews went back in stages. Stage one, a man named Zerubbabel led them back. The Z-man, we'll call him. He led them back. His job was to, was to rebuild the, the temple. And Ezra took some Jews back, and his job was to kind of get back with the worship. And then Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. So Nehemiah's in his third stage, and he's like, hey, is, is it happening? Are things being reconstructed? And the guy said, no. Hananiah says, no, it's not any better. Nothing's better. So once again, Nehemiah's faced with one simple fact. All around him is failure. And so Nehemiah 1, 1, 2, and 3 says to me very loudly and very clearly one thing. I want to get this across to you. That everything in Nehemiah's life reminded him of past failures. Everything in his life reminded him of past failures. Why would God use Nehemiah? He's part of the people. They couldn't do anything right. They've been captured twice. They split up and captured twice. They're in a foreign land. They can't seem to get the ball rolling for anything. They're just so messed up. Those Israelites, they're always in captivity. Even when they do get back, the temple can't get rebuilt. The walls aren't rebuilt. It's being burned. They can't get the worship thing down. They're disobeying God. And all around him, since he was born, all Nehemiah has ever seen was, you know what? Everything about my whole life just is failure. My ancestry, my heritage. And that's the very person that God put his hand on and said, Nehemiah, I want to use you. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that. Have you ever felt like that? That all your situation just screams, you're not going to make it. You're a failure. You just can't do it. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a reputation. Maybe it's a relationship. I don't know what it is in your life, but it's just not working. You just, the bottom line is, you feel like you're failing. Well, Nehemiah felt that very same way. If you feel that way this morning, and trust me, Many people do. They'll say to us in the week, they'll say, you know, God can never use me. God couldn't do anything in my life. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I've been. You don't know all the mistakes I've made. Well, Nehemiah knew that what that felt like. 
to be saddled with baggage. Look what he did in verse 4. Here's the reaction without a take. Now it came about when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. Now that's not an unusual reaction for someone who feels like they just consistently encounter failure. That's not unusual, is it? Crying, weeping, mourning. I think that's what a lot of us would do. If consistently on a regular basis we feel like, man, everything about my life just is not working. What's going on? Crying is really an appropriate response. But look what happens next. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I think here's where a lot of people, including us, when we look back and we see that, you know what, my life just has all kind of little detours that just didn't work out, that oftentimes we kind of do the old turn over a new leaf theory. We put the path behind us and then we say, I'm going to look ahead. And we look ahead and we think, man, there is nothing out there. You know why? Because before you should look ahead, you should look up. Even Paul said that. He said, I put those things behind me, and I look forward, and I press toward the mark of the upward calling of God. Even in that passage of Philippians, he wasn't saying just look ahead with some renewed vigor, some human motivation. He was saying, listen, it's God that's calling you forward. Nehemiah said, there's failure all around me. Everything I see, I'm in captivity. My people have just really blown it. Blah, da, 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 da. Right, Sandy? Or Sandy, da, da, da. All these things happen. It just seems like, it, you know, nothing's working. He sits down and he cries. And he says, I'm going to pray to the God of heaven. I'll tell you what his prayer is all about. We're not going to read it. We're going to get to his prayer next week. But the majority of his prayer is about the faithfulness of God. Look what he says in verse 5, just briefly. He says, you're a great and awesome God. You preserve the covenant. And loving kindness for those who love you and keep your commandments. Yeah, God, you're right. We don't keep our our covenants. We don't keep our promises. But you do, God. You're right, God. We don't obey like we should, but you keep the commandments. God, you preserve the covenant you made with Abraham. And Nehemiah, when all around him was failure, he appealed to the faithfulness of God. I want to say without apology to all of you here, when everything around you seems like, you know what, nothing's working. I'm a failure. God could never use me. You're wrong. Because God is looking for failures. Really? God is looking for failures? He sure is. Can I show you some verses? Look with me at Second uh, Chronicles. I'm going to read these out loud with you, in fact. Second Chronicles 9... 16.9. Let's read these out loud. Let's get there as if we can. Second Chronicles 16.9. If our computer may be a little slow here. Here we go. Great. Read this with me out loud. Ready? The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Is God looking for someone whose life is all in order? No. He's looking for someone whose heart is rightly turned toward Him. That's all God's looking for is a heart. That's positioned to him. See, Nehemiah had very little to offer. He couldn't come to God with a resume, credentials. All he could say was, God, what's wrong? And he just it broke his heart. And that's what God was looking for. Somebody with a heart. I'm big on the heart issue. 
See, a lot of people in here that think you've got it all made. Maybe not a lot. Some of you, a few of you, think you've got it all made because you look great. You know how to play the part and say the words and walk the walk and you can, make, you can fool everybody. But if they were to peel away the layers of your life, they'd find a lonely person with a lot of questions. They'd find someone very proud. No one's going to get to me. You know why God will not use someone like that? Because their heart is not turned toward Him. You know, I know people that look on the outside, they're like, man, how do they make it? But their heart is so in love with God. Their heart is, a, is in passion with Christ. And God's consistently just using them all over the place. Why do you think God used Apostle Paul? I mean, if I brought a murderer in here and said, listen, this guy is a murderer, but he's going to be our pastor now. He'd be like, oh, time out. That goes against the Constitution. Policies, that won't work. And I'd probably leave that charge, to be honest with you. you know, I mean, I'm no different than you, probably. But God reached down and got the Saul's heart, didn't he? They said, i got big plans for you, buddy. And he broke his heart. Think about Moses. Remember Moses in, in, the, in the desert? He tried to, of course, fix everything by killing all the Egyptians one by one to free the people. That didn't work, so he runs away. He's in the desert, and finally God says, Hey, Moses, if you'll just finally let go of all of your failures, yeah, you've blown it, you've murdered a man. All these things have happened. I'll tell you what, Moses, let me handle it now. If you'll just turn to me, and in the very first, in that cave somewhere, Moses worships God, and God gets Moses' heart. It's all about your heart. And I appeal to many of you in this room this morning. Throw aside these images you think are so important and turn your heart to God. Give God your heart. Look at some other verses with me. Proverbs twenty four sixteen. The godly man may trip seven times, but each time they will rise again. I'll tell you something. Failure is part of the life of a godly person. Yeah, God's looking for failures. And you know what? Failure is part of the life of a godly person. But we also get back up. We don't stay down and say, well, I guess this is over. I don't have a chance. Because you know what? God will get you back up. But the wicked, look what it says, one calamity is enough to lay the wicked low. You see, here's the difference between godly people and, and wicked people. When failure comes to life of a godly person... We know we've got God with us to hold our hand and pick us back up. Wicked folks say, well, I guess it's over. I'd much rather live the life of a godly person. Six, seven times you fall, you get right back up. Let me prove it to you. Look at the next verse. Psalm 37. Read this with me out loud. The steps of the godly are directed by the Lord, and though they stumble, they will not fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Isn't that good? I mean, just picture it. Daddy's walking beside us and we're holding his hand. Let go and the stumble will turn to a fall. You may not get up, but hold on to Daddy's hand. And even with the rocks and the big branches and the roots, he's going to pull us back up. He did Nehemiah. Is there one more verse here that we can look at? I'm not sure. Okay, key principle. Let's look at this together. Key principle. My past failures are not as important as God's present faithfulness. Amen. Isn't that good? You see, the observations lead us to this principle. Everything about Nehemiah's life reminded him of past failures. Boy, I mean, we can relate there, can't we? 
blew this. This didn't work out. Nothing happened right here. Man, God, my life's just a wreck sometimes. Look at my past, God. You would never want me, would you? But God looks down and says, let me ask you something. All I want to see is your, is your heart turned to me. In repentance, would you acknowledge my faithfulness above your own abilities? And when we do, then we realize that everything in our heart reminds us of God's faithfulness. And this principle pops out as a guiding principle of life. That my past failures are not as important as God's present faithfulness. And I want to tell you, everybody here has got a closet they don't want anybody to open. You know you do. You've got a bag of things you did in the past, and you hope nobody ever gets that padlock the right and opens it up and looks in there. And I've got mine. You've got yours. I'm not saying we should bring them in and dump them out. I'm saying you should say, God, these are things that I don't know how I could ever take these back or redo these. And God says, won't you let me take care of that? And God's faithfulness supersedes and overrides and looks beyond all why do you think they call it grace? If you deserved it, then we wouldn't need God. And if it made sense, we could call it payment. Wages. That's what you get for sin. You get wages for sin. You do wrong stuff. You're born in sin. And you get what you deserve. What you deserve what I deserve is separation from God forever. That's what we ought to get. So before you holler out, oh, this ain't fair. Before you get mad and say, I'm not getting what I think I deserve. It could be a whole lot worse, right, Carl? It could be. The truth is, all of us are failures. And all of us have things in our life that we know could, we'll never make up for. And it's those very opportunities that God looks for and says, listen, let me show myself strong on your behalf. God is looking for someone willing to come to the end of themselves and say, Jesus, would you show yourself strong in, on my behalf? Hey, Todd, I, I had a marriage and I, it just fell apart one time. And I thought it was the right thing, you know, and it seemed right and it just, it just blew up. Yeah, I've got this divorce and I go around to churches and, and they say, well, if you've been... And I just feel so awful. Your past failures are as important as God's present faithfulness. Say amen. Amen. Hey, Todd, you know, I, um, I had a terrible wreck. Someone was killed in it. And I was drinking. And I'll never be able to... I mean, it was awful. You're right. That is awful. God's present faithfulness is greater than your past failures. So, Todd, before I was saved, I, and I was wild at... Even with my family, I got some kids from other other experiences that just, you know, I mean, I've made some terrible things. And, and they're going to last with me. They've got to have scars. Hey, God's present faithfulness is greater than your past failures. We don't like that kind of preaching, though, i got to tell you. Because we want to make people pay, don't we, Carol? We do. We like to make folks earn it and live up to it. If you don't act like you deserve it, then I'm not giving it to you. That's how we are. That's the human nature of us. And that's why your human nature needs regenerated. 
Because God does not think like that. God knows from the very get-go, nobody deserved it. And so when the best guy in the world realizes he's lost and cries to God, in God's eyes, he says, I will give you the grace to be saved. And when the worst guy says, God, please rescue me, he gives the grace to be saved. God extends his faithful grace to all, regardless. When they call him repentance. See, the key then is not to say, well, can I be better? Can I have a better to-do list? Maybe I'll impress God. That's not the key. The key is to humbly repent before God. And lay yourself out as an open book and say, God, I've got nothing to offer you. Will you change my heart? And then the Holy Spirit comes in and He begins to regenerate, transform your life. Isn't that a whole lot better than trying to do the human way and work it up and all these kind of things? It's a whole lot better. Last night I was um, preaching to Julie before this morning. And she said, man, we're not going to get past verse 4? She goes, how many years are we going to be in this book? You know, I don't know about those last two questions, but I would tell you this. Don't overlook the very first few verses. We read that stuff like it's not important, you know. Uh, here's where it was located. It's not a big deal. And he just cried about a few things. Let's get to the good part where they're building. They're laying the bricks. I want to say to something. That they wouldn't have laid any bricks and built any wall if God had chose somebody to lead that group. And he didn't choose the kind of person he thought he would choose. He reached down to someone whose whole life reminded him of all the ways they had failed. He said, Nehemiah, if you will trust me, I will prove myself faithful to you. And Nehemiah said, God, that's all I need. is assurance from Jesus, from God, that you'll be faithful. And Nehemiah began a journey to lead the people back and build the walls. Now, let me ask you just a real simple question. Why aren't you letting God use you. Oh, it's not just about Nehemiah? No, it's not. You say, well, Todd, you just don't know what I've done. You're right, and I don't need to know. All I can say is this, that God's faithfulness is greater than your failures. Say, Todd, my last church experience, man, they ran me out. They, and all these, what's your heart like? What is your heart saying to God? Here's the action to take today. Simple action point. Don't look back, look up. And I mean that. I mean, we have several guys in our church who do motivational speaking. And they train leaders of companies to go out and to, you know, rah, rah, cheer, cheer for the company and, and to plan and organize and do those things and and they'll tell you, look to the future, cast a strong vision. I want to say before any of that, you just find some time to get your eyes on God. I think for some of you here, that means you need to repent of your sin and turn to God in faith. And allow me to be very clear and honest. I saw him to a guy this week, and we've become friends and 
I was explaining to him why I was so honest with him about his spiritual condition. And I said, you know, if, if my son or my daughters were making a path for a cliff, I wouldn't sit on the couch with a remote and say, hey, if you get a minute, think about stopping. Or I'll put up a fence at the commercial break. I would make a mad dash. I would dive. I would claw. I would grab. I would scream. I would do whatever I had to do to make sure my kids did not go over the cliff. I said to this person, I said, listen, my clarity with you is just because I know what's ahead. If you, if you don't know Jesus, there's a cliff. It's called eternity without God. And I'm going to claw and scream and yell and put up fences. So everybody will know you don't have to go there. God's faithfulness is greater than your failures. So I think there's some here this morning who ought to say, you know what, if that's really true, if God does not care what I've done, but He only looks for someone whose heart is turned to Him so He can show Himself strong that I'll be that person, I will turn to God in repentance. That's what God wants you to do. We call that things like getting saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you'll call me, Lord, you'll be saved. We call that becoming a Christian. Or John 3, being born again. All it means is this, that you turn from your sins and turn to God and believe in Christ. And His death on the cross is the only way to heaven. When that happens, God forgives all of your failures. And He starts clean. That's called grace. If there's any one place ought to preach that, ought to be a church name, Grace. Where folks ought to find the freedom from failure and the freedom of God's faithfulness. How many of those folks here who you beat yourself up long enough? You've got every reason in the world why God couldn't use you and why God's not using you. And it all revolves around you. Well, there's the problem. God is bigger and greater than you. And He'll forgive and He'll empower if your heart is right before Him to serve Him again and to get a fresh start. The devil, He loves to put baggage on you and keep you down. He loves to, to cripple you. But what God wants is someone whose heart is turned to Him so He can show Himself strong on your behalf. Would you be that person today? Would you say, God, okay, I will take your word. And based on Nehemiah's life, these simple verses, I will believe that my failures are not as important as God's faithfulness. And from this day forward, God, you have gotten me 100%. I will serve you like it's a brand new day. I'll trust you, God, today, and I'll accept you as my Savior. What is the cry of your heart? I was in here the other morning and just uh, walking through the rows and just singing a little bit and praying and then I'd do some preaching to myself a good bit, you know, in here. I like to come in here a lot in the week and I like to just, um, I get a real sense of what God wants to say, to be honest with you, and I get a sense of doing my life and I just like, you know, I talk to God in here a lot. And I remember walking up this window over here and I was just thinking about this passage. But how many people not only in our church, who beat themselves up, who think, you know what, I'm just not good enough. I'm not worthy. I want to say to you, you don't have to be. God is 
God's good enough. And it's God that's everything. And I walked through this window and I thought, you know, how many people in these apartments over here? And the one behind us. And all down this road, sit in those apartments, sit in those homes. And a lot of you live on this road, off this road. They sit in those homes, behind those closed doors, behind those windows, and they think, you know what? Nobody loves me. I can't do anything right. If anybody knew about me, they'd probably hate me. My life's a failure. They get the mail and it's 23 credit card bills. It's a thousand creditors who want everything they own. Or it's, uh, you know, more payment from the ex. It's just problem. Everything about them says, man, I just can't seem to do anything right. And I sat there and I started crying, thinking, man, God, if this, if this church could rise up and be a beacon of freedom. Don't you think folks are tired of being bound? Do they want one more person in their life saying, oh, you owe me and you owe God, buddy. So here, put on these chains and get busy. Don't you think they're tired of that? Where's the liberty that Paul preached? If you have the Son, then you are free indeed. And we're here to proclaim freedom of the captives. And I just sat there and prayed and said, God, don't ever let Grace West become a church that binds people. And we always be about the liberty and the freedom found in Christ, even above and beyond all your failures. When it starts being a gospel that of you deserving it. Well, you're pretty good. You can come into this church, Carl. Hey, I see you have a good resume. We'd love to give you the second row. Then this church ought to shut its doors and close down. That's not what we're about. We're about saying, it doesn't matter what you've done, your past failures, or all the ways you think you've blown it. The grace of God is greater. Would you please just trust God? And we're going to preach that Long and loud. So what about you? You ready? Your failures forcing you on your face? If they are, look up. Cry out to God for His faithfulness and mercy and love and grace.